turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Our reading this morning is Romans 3, 19 to 31. The title of the sermon is, How Can I Be Right with God? Romans 3, beginning in verse 19, hear these words. Paul writes as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. I need to make a, an announcement. I failed to bring this up during the, the time of the announcements, uh, but I think it's, it's good news. Uh, the church is starting a, a major capital fund drive. Uh, you can look at this sanctuary and it's, I think it's been 25, 30 years since it's been renovated. So we are, uh, also there's possibility, there's land around the church. Who knows, maybe we'll have an opportunity to purchase a, uh, a parking lot or something like that. But we need, we need finances to do that. We need money to do that. And it's uh, awkward to ask but we need you to seriously consider digging deeper into your wallets and supporting the church. And there's other reasons for that too. Um, there's personal benefits that, that I receive. I mean, we need, Catherine and I need, we need work done on our house. And we would appreciate being able to purchase nice shoes for our kids. And to be honest with you, um, I've seen some of the jets that these televangelists fly around in, and that would help me get back to Texas. Now to incentivize your kind 
offering, even I'm asking you to sacrificially give. Um, as an incentive, I want to offer you something extraordinary. For every dollar you give, I, as a minister of the gospel, will forgive you of your sins. And obviously some of you need to give more because you have more sins. I know at first you thought I was being serious, but now you understand. What a scam, right? What a disgrace to uh, manipulate, to spiritually manipulate the people of God. A little over 500 years ago, a similar message circulated through, throughout Roman Catholic Europe. The Roman Catholic Church needed money to complete a, a massive building project. It was, uh, it was dirty. There were a lot of uh, government officials, princes in Germany, who were lining their pockets through some of this money as well. Disgraceful practices. Uh, the Roman church needed money to fund the, the completion of the Basilica of St. Peter, a very massive cathedral in Rome. So Pope Leo X sanctioned the selling of indulgences to generate funds. And this is what an indulgence was. It was a, a kind of a spiritual promissory note offered by the church through the Pope that guaranteed if you gave money to buy one of these indulgences, God would forgive you of your sins. There were a lot of people that didn't have access to the Bible to read and to study. They were taken advantage of in very despicable ways. This practice infuriated a German monk by the name of Martin Luther. On the eve of All Saints Day, or All Hallows' Day, Halloween. That's where we get Halloween from yesterday. Today is All Saints' Day. Uh, on the eve of All Saints' Day, October 31st, 1517, Luther nailed a letter, a strong letter of protest to the selling of indulgences. In his list of 95 complaints, uh, he very much focused on this despicable practice. In complaint 21 of the 95, he writes this, Therefore, those preachers of indulgences err who say that by the Pope's indulgence a man may be exempt from all punishment and be saved. In complaint 32, he says this, On the way to eternal damnation, are they and their teachers who believe that they are sure of their salvation through indulgences? Now that leads us to a, a very big question. If the church through the Pope and the, the selling of indulgences could not assure us of forgiveness of sins, then what is our grounds of assurance? How did Luther think a sinner could be pardoned and made right before the judgment seat of a holy and an almighty God? How do you, how do you think you will stand on the day of judgment before God? How 
can we as sinners be made righteous? Well, Paul gives us the answer here. One of the most significant passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. We're going to break it down in two points. First, the dawning of a new era. And second, the cost of our righteousness. The dawning of a new era and the cost of our righteousness. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, through to this passage that we're looking at this morning, the Apostle Paul has explained the perilous position of all human beings. No one is exempt, whether you're Jew or Greek. We are all under the wrath and curse of God. Look at, at Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed, or the wrath of God is made manifest from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then Paul goes into elaborate detail of why the Gentiles are under wrath and why the, Greek, or the Jews are under condemnation. Now, we can't change this position we're in by doing good works. Paul has also said that the law, by keeping the law, instead of being uh, uh, an avenue through which we can gain God's favor, it condemns us. It, it doesn't tell us how to fix the problem. It just it tells us that there is a problem. Three, Romans 3.20, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in the sight of God. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All human beings are descendants of Adam and therefore born in a state of sinfulness. We are under sin as Paul describes it. We, as he says to the Ephesians, we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. We're in a helpless, hopeless position and we can do nothing to fix it. But God can. And God certainly does. Look at the difference between verse eight, chapter 1, verse 18, and chapter 3, verse 21. Chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is made manifest from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Verse, chapter 3, verse 21, But now, but now, the righteousness of God, not the wrath of God, the righteousness of God has been made manifest or revealed apart from the law, apart from anything that we can contribute. God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, is initiating a new era in His relationships with human beings. The old era under Adam was, uh, if you remember, Adam entered the world and his way of being right and acceptable in the presence of God was based on his moral activity. He was what we call under a covenant of works or a covenant of law. 
And it went something like this. You'll be familiar with this. Adam, God tells Adam, Adam, if you do what I command, you will live. But Adam, if you break my commandment, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. A covenant of works resting on his ability to keep the commandments of God. Righteousness was determined by how a person lives. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 6. You see this. And this is an unbearable burden for us. When we seek acceptance and favor with God based on how we live our lives. Second, uh, Romans 2, verse 6. Under this covenant of works, this is how God judges us. He will render each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But... For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. But now, that's not how God's dealing with us anymore in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But now, a righteousness of God has been made manifest that is apart from the works of the law that comes to us through faith. A way, Paul says, for condemned sinners who rightfully deserve God's judgment, a way for them to be cleared of all guilt. That is, that is a message so powerful and so comforting that you wonder how hard the human heart must truly be to resist it. Paul introduces us to a very important word here, the righteousness of God. He speaks of it several times in this section of Scripture. And I want you to be very clear about what it means. The righteousness of God that has been revealed apart from works is this. It's a judicial declaration. It's, it's, if you think about it, in the courtroom, the divine courtroom, it's God's judicial declaration. When we stand, stand before Him, and we have all of these sins against our record, it's His judicial declaration as supreme judge proclaiming us innocent, free of all guilt, pardoned. And not only that, but positively declaring us as righteous, as perfect, as morally spotless in His sight. That is amazing news. That's why it's called gospel, 
good news for sinners. There is a way that God Himself has provided for you to be declared spotless on the judgment day. I want that. He makes it very clear in this text that it is apart from the works of the law, apart from any human contribution, that it is received by faith alone in Christ Jesus. Now, the Reformers very wisely and uh, helpfully make sure that we understand that our faith is not a work itself. It's like a, a spiritually uh, bankrupt beggar reaching out to God for a gift that He is providing for us. If you think of someone begging for money on the streets, if you give them a $5 bill, how strange would it be for them to say, I earned that because I reached out and took it? That makes no sense. It's the same with God. Our faith is simply a, a vehicle, an instrument by which we receive God's good gift to us. Now, at this point, Paul anticipates a Jewish question. Look at verse 21. I know we're hitting on this hard. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The Jews are thinking, well, wait a minute, this is so foreign to our understanding of God. We thought the law was given to make us righteous morally. We thought that by our works we could gain God's favor. So, Paul, what are you saying, that the Old Testament means nothing? And Paul says, no, the Old Testament has been telling the same story. You just have abused it and misunderstood it. Do you, any of you struggle with how to relate the Old Testament to the New? When you read it, it, it does seem kind of heavy on law and, you know, a lot of ceremonies and sacrifices and food laws. What, what, how do we understand this? There's a Princeton theologian by the name of B.B. Warfield, and he gives what, what I've found to be one of the most helpful illustrations to, to help us understand the relationship of the Old Testament and the New Testament. He says this, the religious teaching of the Old Testament is like a, uh, we got these antebellum homes in Columbus. It's, it's like a beautiful parlor in one of these antebellum homes, a well-furnished parlor with uh, expensive silver plates and uh, beautiful paintings on the wall, a chandelier. But, uh, but Warfield says, the Old Testament is that parlor, that, that, that furnished room, but it's pitch black. It's dark of night. And the only thing in the room is a little candle. Now, how much can you see of the room with a candle on? Not a whole lot, right? You can make out some, oh, there's a chair there, and I feel that, and I stumble over this. But I, I can tell there's a beautiful chair, but I can't tell the, the design on the upholstery. I can't see the, the crafting and the carvings on the silverware. Um, so that's the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament is nothing new. It's the same room, but now it's fully lit, and you can see it. So, everything in the Gospel was found in the Old Testament, but it was, it was hard for us to see because of the types 
and the shadows and the symbolism and the ceremony. The religion is exactly the same, but now we see it so much more clearly and brightly. That's a beautiful way of us thinking about the relationship between Old and New Testament. Now, think about how often Paul is drawing from the Old Testament to talk about the total depravity of man. He uses in Romans 3, 10 to 18, Psalms, Proverbs, Prophets. To speak of the glorious righteousness of God that comes to us sinners, we deserve nothing of it, but it comes to us apart from any works. He takes up David in Romans 4, verses 7 to 8, Psalm, taking from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's Old Testament teaching. Nothing different. God hasn't changed. We just understand it better under the light of Christ. God initiates. God accomplishes. And God applies this salvation to us. Paul's already said none of us seek after God. No, His grace came and found us even doing good to us, even while we were hardened in our sin and running from God. Some of you may be running from God today. I don't know your condition. I don't know uh, where your faith is. But sometimes He uses a sermon that you weren't expecting as a spiritual hound that pursues your soul until you relent of your hardness of heart and receive the goodness of His grace. And I pray for that every time I preach. All I can do is plant seeds and water, but may God give the increase. Verse 24 makes it clear that this is a gift. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We've done nothing to deserve it. We have nothing to boast of. God the Father put His Son forward as a sacrifice to atone for our sins. Now, it's free to us. We didn't do anything to deserve it. It's something that God offers and we take hold of by faith. But it's not free. It's free to us, but it involves great cost. And that brings us to our second point, the cost of our righteousness. In relation to us, it's free. It's a gift. We do nothing to earn it. In fact, um, as verse 23 highlights for us, our actions only exaggerate our condemnation. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. However, it was extremely costly to God. And he begins to flesh this out in verse 24. 
We are justified by His grace as a gift through, it's a gift to us, but it's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's through a payment made by Christ on our behalf. This term redemption is important in our text. It means to liberate through the payment of a price. Also, the Bible speaks of Christ's work as a ransom. You may remember in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says these words, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. So, God was at work redeeming us, paying a very, very costly and precious price to receive us back, to take us from under the wrath of God to in the righteous favor of God. Christ has done something for us. Now, this is very important, and I think uh, out of respect to our Reformed forefathers, we need to be very clear about this. Let me ask you, if you were to stand before God's judgment seat today, do you have confidence that He would declare you righteous? Do you, could you stand in this church and say, I am righteous before God? I can. Because I believe the Gospel. The only reason I couldn't is if I was depending on my works. If I'm looking at my works, my contributions, no, I'm not righteous, but I am righteous before God. John Calvin, Martin Luther, they understood this, and it was life transforming for them. It's amazing to me how you have to pry the fingers of Christians, even godly Christians in godly Bible-believing church, you have to pry their hands off of their own contributions. And we seem to kind of latch back on, and we have to keep, I think the, the, the ministry of God's Word is often just to keep helping you pry your fingers off of your own self-contribution to your righteousness, because you get a finger or two off and then they go back. Why are you righteous before God? Now, faith in Jesus Christ isn't simply saying, I believe Jesus is my Savior. The devil believes in Jesus. The devil believes Jesus is the Messiah. But can you sit down and explain to me how Jesus makes you righteous? Our faith is not just in Him, but also in what He has done. We need to understand it. We have children going through our communicants class. It is key for you to be able to say, I understand the gospel. This is why Jesus is important to me. Not just because my parents love Him, not just because my pastor says His name a lot in sermons, but because I know what He's done for me. So we're going to dive into that. What did Jesus do to make us righteous? I am a sinner. You are sinners. That's a sad reality. What did Jesus do to change God's perception of me? Paul introduces us to a word that's not all that familiar to us, propitiation in verse 25. 
God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Do you see what your faith needs to be receiving? Not just Jesus, generally, but Jesus as a propitiation. Jesus as one who was set forward by the Father to be a propitiation through His blood. You have to grasp that by faith. What is propitiation? We can define it in this way. It's the offering of a sacrifice to appease the wrath of God. It is a sacrifice that satisfies the demands of divine justice. God is holy and He is purely just. So He has to punish sin. He can't just wink at it. He can't just say, oh, I feel like loving the world today. Let me just let him off the hook. Think if you had a judge like that and you had a, a family member who was murdered and the judge just said, oh, I feel good today. I'm just going to let the murderer off the hook. Would you as a family member be upset about that? We have a sense of justice unless it's justice against us. Now, if we're the murderer, it's fine for him to let us go. God is just. He can't just wink at sin. He must deal with it. Jesus, the sinless one, takes our sins upon His shoulders and carries them to the cross to receive divine punishment for those sins by His blood. Listen to these two passages. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, For our sake, our benefit, He the Father, made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. He made Him to be sin who was perfect, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Who are you? We're the righteousness of God. We're pure, spotless. Why? Because Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. Galatians 3.13 Paul writes, Christ redeemed us. He bought us. He paid for our sins. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. I want you to be able to go away with a, a new theological concept. It may not be new for some of you, but for some of you it may the idea is this. I want you to think of what Christ has done to gain, to, to make you righteous before God through this concept of double imputation. Okay, you probably, some of you, have, some of you are real switched on to these things and you're like, yeah, I'm glad he's talking about double imputation. And others of you are like, how do you spell that imputation? Uh, it's a beautiful concept. Double imputation. Double transfer. This is what goes on when we by faith receive Christ. This is what we're, we're accepting Him and putting our trust in, that He will do this for us. The first imputation or transfer is our sin to God, to God the Son, to Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament when they sacrificed animals, you put the, the, the man bringing the sacrifice would put his hand on the head of the lamb or the, the cow or whatever, and that symbolized a transfer of our sinfulness to that animal, and then the animal would be taken and sacrificed. So the animal was taking our punishment. Before you take this supper, 
I want you to understand what you need Christ for. Every day you need to pass your sin to Him. Pass your sin to Christ. Past sin, present sin, we offload it onto the shoulders of our Savior. We impute it to Him. We transfer it to Him. And He takes it to the cross and makes divine payment. He makes he, he, makes, he satisfies God's justice for that sin. He pays the price for it. But then in return, He does something to us. It's a double imputation. There, is, uh, there are spiritual blessings transferring both, both ways. We give our sin to Him, and in return, Christ has been at work on earth keeping the law, fulfilling all righteousness. And He transfers that righteousness right back to us. It's as if we're uh, a college kid at college and got into a lot of debt. Daddy, Mommy, can you transfer some funds into my bank account? We are spiritually bankrupt. And we give our debt to Jesus and He goes and pays for it on the cross. And in response He gives us all spiritual blessings. He fills our bank account up and every time we take money out and do something foolish, He keeps filling it up. It is overflowing. Think of your salvation in that way. Why does God accept you as righteous? Because you've given Jesus your sin, and He's given you His righteousness. Double imputation. Double transfer. That's what Paul is talking about here. We're going to conclude as we prepare for the supper. I'm going to leave you with this statement by John Calvin, the French reformer from Geneva. Listen to this. John Calvin writes, Therefore, justification, being declared righteous in the sight of God, justification is to be understood simply as the acceptance by which God receives us into His favor as righteous people. It's hard to even say it. It's so beautiful. We say that it consists of a remission of sins and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. That's the double imputation. There is no doubt that we obtain justification in the sight of God only by the intercession of the righteousness of Christ. This is equivalent to saying, writes Calvin, this is equivalent to saying that believers are not righteous in themselves. I'm not righteous in myself, but I'm righteous before God, because I'm not in myself. I'm in Christ. This is equivalent to saying that believers are not righteous in themselves, but on account of the communication of the righteousness of Christ through imputation, something to be noted carefully, our righteousness is not in us, but in Christ. We possess it only because we participate in Christ. In fact, with Him, we possess all His riches. That's the Gospel. That is good news. That is life-transforming, soul-liberating, God-glorifying news. Let's pray. Well, Lord our God, we, we hear these words but we know, Lord, that You must write them upon our hearts. And I pray that Your Spirit would work powerfully in this congregation at this moment, would take these truths and 
force them into our hearts. Help our hearts to, to flame with joy because of them. Oh Lord, you are, you are just. You don't wink at sin. You don't turn your head against it. You are just, and you are the one who justifies sinners through the marvelous gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, justify us, we pray, as we cling to your Son by faith. Amen.